It's such a joy to me to be here this morning with you to proclaim the word of God. There was something else I was going to say, but I've forgotten what it is already. Thank you so much for ladies, you being here. How many of you, your husbands are not here this morning? Come on, just how many of you? No husband, your husband. Okay. Now, how many of you will admit this? You actually had an easier time getting the family ready now that you didn't have to get your husband ready too. Yeah, thank you. Exactly. <clears throat> when I need to dress up, or at least look halfway decent, this is as decent as I can look. I can't do that without Jean. Thank you, Gina. <laughs> you dirty. So, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I can't do it without jeans, so I have to ask, okay, if I wear this jacket or this suit or whatever, what shirt do I wear with it? What tie do I wear with it? What shoes and socks? I'm serious. This is the way I am. I'm totally color-coordinated in a confused way. And so sometimes getting the family ready when the husband is there may be actually more work for you. And you may be sitting here this morning, oh, this is really relaxing. So thank you so much for being here. I felt the Holy Spirit wants us to consider something this morning that we've talked about from time to time but wanted to concentrate this morning. I think there is a general weakness in the church, not in every church, but I think generally so, there is a weakness in the church in our administration of the word of God, in the will of God, in the purpose of God, etc. And I've mentioned this before, and I will continue to mention it. Excuse me for old man throat. And that's this. There's not yet, by the way, that clock needs to be on. I'll be here three hours. That's fine with me. But it may not be fine with those who need to take a nap in the afternoon. How many of you are okay to go three hours straight? About four hands went up. There's There's a particular issue, I think, that is not being stressed significantly. And I've mentioned it before, as I said, it's nothing new. And that is this. There's too much emphasis in the church about today and not about that day. That day when the word of God says, Jesus says, and the son of man, remember, in Matthew chapter 25, Verses 31 to 45. And the Son of Man shall gather all the nations before him. And the goats he will put on his left. Those are the ones who are not part of his kingdom. And the sheep he will put on his right. And every single living human being, no matter who you are, 
how you lived, what you believe. Every single living human being will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of our lives. You see, the significance of this day is that day. Now you say, well, but isn't that preaching so much about it doesn't matter about this day? Why is that day so important? Because we're going to heaven. No. Why is that day so significant? It's the most significant day to God. Because everything that God has been doing from Genesis 1-1 all the way through has been getting to that day. And that's the day when God the Father with great joy shall be able to fully, finally, and forever proclaim in his people the supremacy of his son. That's the day when the father's son shall be revealed in the fullness of his glory in his people. That's the day that God the father is waiting for to show the world the greatness and the glory of his son. Can you say amen? That's the significance of that day. And we will be the literal means the literal way, the literal activity of the display of the supremacy of his son to all creation. You see, Renee, that's why that day is important. That's why that day governs this day, and that's why this day, in every absolute single activity and issue of your life and of my life must be governed by motivated by moved forward by that day and we simply do not teach and preach enough about that day because that's the day of God can you right do you understand the, the, the necessity and the importance of that day? And so how do we live today in anticipation, not only anticipation, but how do we live today in a way that will manifest the glory and the greatness, the supremacy of God's Son? Some of you may... Remember, there was an emphasis of teaching several years ago, and it's still in the church, and it should be in the church, called Our Identity in Christ. How many of you know you've heard that, who I am in Christ? A few of you. And who I am in Christ is very, very important. But it only makes sense and is operative within the context of a greater revelation of who this God is in me. Who is this God? 
who is this God that he would do what he has done and take his abode in me? Who are you? This great, eternal, magnificent majesty that he would live in me. Who are you? Is centrally the most significant question we can ask. Who are you? Not who am I in Christ, but who is he in me? Because as I understand and to the extent that I understand who he is in me, then I will begin to understand who I am in him. And the two become one in reality and unity, but in function. So this morning, what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do, excuse me, let me get a little water. Is to bring us to a place this morning of having a greater comprehension of the supremacy of Christ. Because I'm convinced and believe the word bears it out. To the place we understand the supremacy of Christ. Will be the place. Where we will be receiving the spirit-given motivation and empowerment to be manifesting that supremacy to the creation and before the ever-watchful, evaluative eyes of God the Father. So there are a lot of things that we need to know. But I believe centrally... The most significant is who is this one who lives in me by the Spirit? So this morning we're going to talk about the supremacy of Christ. And if you look in your outline, I ask Evan to do it this way. Hopefully this will be okay for you. It'll be a little didactic. In other words, a little teachy. But we're going to begin, we're going to look at a passage from Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 to 18. In the Bible, there are passages which are theologically condensed, compact, absolutely incredible passages. This is one of them. Another one would be Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14. Incredible passage. Another would be in Romans chapter 3. I think it's verse 24 to 27. Incredible passages. And while we don't elevate one area of the word over another, we do recognize that there are in particular passages so much condensed theology, revelation from God about himself, Therefore, revelation also about us and our relationship with him and how to walk that out. That these passages absolutely are essential for our understanding. Primarily of who God is and then who we are in him and how that is to be walked out. So this morning we're going to take Colossians 1, 15 to 18. 
And I think this is one of the most succinct statements of the supremacy of Christ that there is in the Bible. And I'm going to break it down this way in three sections. I'm not sure if I think it is this way in your notes. Verse 15, the first part of verse 15, the supremacy of Christ in relation to God. Then 15b, the second part of that verse through 17, the supremacy of Christ in relation to the creation. And then verse 18, the supremacy of Christ in relation to the church. Now there's 19 and 20 go on to talk about an aspect of the work of Christ, but we're centrally, we're, we're identifying and specifying the person of Christ himself. We're talking this morning about this magnificent heavenly man who has given all who has been given all authority in heaven and earth remember that in Matthew 28:18 and who rules and reigns over all the universe there is a man in the heavens who is God's enthroned incarnate son forever and this is the one we're talking about So as we go through this, I think what you're going to have to do is not just sit and listen, but write notes and take out certain uh, terms or words that and let me identify some of the meaning of these things as I go through my notes pretty, pretty uh, regularly here, hoping not to get off the track too much because I'm more interested this morning in us picking up the content here than saying a whole lot about it. So let's look at the first part of verse 15, Colossians 1:15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Now, what's the first thing we notice there? Now, be careful, because we typically would miss it. Do you notice that Paul doesn't say Christ was? Christ will be. Whenever we're talking about the person of God, God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, it is certainly appropriate to reference God in relation to past, present, and future tenses in relation to his activities. But it is absolutely inappropriate to reference the person of God as to his person with anything except the present tense of the verb to be, I am, or is. Do we get that? And so what Paul has said here is that when we look at Christ, who is this man? Who, what does the supremacy of Christ mean? First of all, primarily, it means that he is. Remember in John 8, 44, um, John eight fifty eight. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and they're talking about Abraham and, hey, how can you be, how can you know Abraham? You're only 50 years old. You, you, you know, Abraham lived thousands of years ago. He said before Abraham was what? Ego Amy, which is a Greek for what? I am. I am. I am the eternal self-existent God. No wonder they picked up stones. No wonder they did. Their theology, as they understood it, taught them to stone such a person. 
And so when the Bible talks about the person of God, it's always in the present tense. The activities of God, past, present, and future. God did this, he did that, he's going to do the other. But who is God? He is. So that's the first thing. The word is proclaims the eternality. The ever-existing one. You can reference John 8, 58 there. Second, he is the image of the invisible God. I'm not going to talk about the word invisible. Invisible obviously means he cannot be seen in the natural realm. Okay, that's easy. He is the image of the invisible God. What is an image? The word, first of all, the word God. Let's look at the word God in that verse. In the New Testament, in the, especially in the epistles, whenever you see the word God, theos, T-H-E-O-S, when you see that word, most of the time, except in very particular circumstances, which are easily discernible in the context of the verse, the word God refers to God the Father. Do we have that? So, and when you read your New Testament, and the apostles, Peter and John and Paul, whoever, are saying God, just the word God, they're referring to God the Father. And then they will differentiate the other persons of God by saying Jesus, Jesus Christ the Lord, or the Lord, and the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit. So I want to make sure we get that part. So this means that this, that Christ is the image of God the Father, specifically. Now you know what a word image means. It means the, an image expresses the concept of two things, representation and manifestation. When we look at Jesus, he fully, completely, and perfectly represents the Father. He comes in the Father's name with the Father's authority for the Father's purpose, achieving the Father's goal. But the word image not only has to do with representation, but when representation becomes so perfect, then the representation becomes a manifestation. A manifestation. I can represent the elders, maybe not well, but I can represent them. But I can't do so so perfectly that I become the manifestation of the elders. Do you understand? But in Christ, both of these are fully, functionally, perfectly, uniquely. And so he's not only the representation of God the Father, but he perfectly and uniquely manifests the very nature and the very character of God. Now remember, we're talking about this one who walks the dusty roads of Galilee. And this man is the eternal God the Son, having taken to himself a human body and a human soul, so that in this man dwells the divine nature and the human nature together in unity, but not intermixed or confused, but each one distinct in this one man. How does that work? Ask Evan. He knows more than I do about this. You see, how can Jesus, how can Christ, 
How can he perfectly and uniquely represent and manifest the Father? How can he do it? This is horrible that I, I should do these four verses. Each verse needs literally two or three weeks. Well, okay. How can he do it? Because he is the divine son. I'll just skip some of the things, go through them quickly. How can Jesus be the perfect image of God the Father? Because he is the son of God. John 1.1, 1, 1. you remember that? Maybe it's in your verses there. Is a reference there, John 1.1? 1, 1. He's a divine son. Well, write it down if it isn't. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same, the same word was in the beginning with God. Correct? And all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he was in the beginning with God. There is in the beginning a community of divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who always have existed. And one of those persons, God the Son, the Bible says in John 1, 14, write it down if you don't know it, and that eternal word, that eternal Son, that one who is fully God in himself, but not fully God by himself, who has the complete, total nature and essence and character and attributes of God as each, as the Father and the Son also. How does this work? I don't know. This one, the Bible says in one fourteen of John, became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of truth and grace, or grace and truth. So how can he be the image? How can he be the image of God? Because you see, he is the divine son. In fact, this is what Jesus says about himself. Remember in John 14, 9 at the Last Supper. Philip says, Jesus, could you do just one thing? What's that? Show us the Father. Manifest the Father. And what does Jesus say? Have I been with you this long, Philip, and you asked me to show us the Father? If anyone, verse 9, has seen me, What? He has seen the Father. So first of all, and primarily, everything that is said for the rest of these verses is set on this foundation that this is the eternal God, the Son, one with the Father and one with the Spirit, fully God, eternally in himself, having taken to himself a human body and soul in order to manifest represent God the Father in his people and through his people. Therefore, the incarnation is for the purpose of having a people in whom God may dwell relationally. That's where this is going. Verses 15b to 17. The supremacy of Christ in relation to the creation. 
it says that Jesus, he is the firstborn of all creation. So now Paul has said God's relationship with the father. He's one with the father. He's the son. He's the image. So now what is his relationship as the eternal son, one with the father? What is the relationship with the creation? Well, here it is. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, the word firstborn, some technicality here, but we won't go into it just to say this. The word firstborn has two uses in the New Testament. In John 2, 7, I'm sorry, Luke 2, 7, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. So that means the first to be born. Just simply that. And so you see, that's where certain groups go off because they say that's the meaning, which it is. Therefore, it means that God the Father created the Son and the Son now is a created being. But that again denies other verses in the Bible. So Paul is not saying that Christ is the first to be created. He's not saying that. Don't fall for that. Although in English it might be, well, that's what it says. It does say that, but that's not what the Greek word monogamous means. It has another meaning. What Paul is saying within the context that this is one who is the very image of God. Now let's think about it this way. God is eternal. Can a created being uniquely and perfectly manifest an eternal being? Can it happen? Yes or no? Anybody out there? Can a created being manifest perfectly and uniquely an eternal being? Can he do it? Well, of course not. Of course not. And you see, this is what the devil wants. He wants us to see the son as below the father and less than losing the significance of who he is in himself. So what Paul is saying here is because Christ is the uncreated son. Remember John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Because he is the uncreated eternal son, what Paul is saying here in, with this word firstborn is that he has the first of rank. He is the one who has a priority over all the creation. He has priority. He's the eternal son. And so that everything that is comes into existence because of his word, his stating it, his power, his authority to create. And as a result of that, he has the first in rank and authority over all the cosmos because of who he is. Because he is the father's agent in creation. So he has the first place. Therefore, because Christ is the firstborn of all creation, in verses 16 and 17, which are the next two, Paul now proceeds to explain the supremacy of Christ over creation. Paul says he's the first place. He has the priority in all the creation. Well, what does that mean? You see the process. He's first of all one with God as God. And now, having established that, he is the firstborn of all creation. Because of who he is in himself, he has created all things and has the first place of the priority, the authority and power and rule over all of that 
which he has created. In fact, that includes us. Us. Be very careful how far you push your own will. It isn't about our will. It's about his rule and supremacy. Do you understand? Can you say amen? It's okay. We call ourselves a Pentecostal church. You can react. You can interact with the man up here. Although it might frighten some of them, it won't frighten me. We need to be careful. Who is this one? Who is this one when I am tempted to sin? And what is my sin saying about his preeminence, his sovereignty? What are my decisions saying about his right to rule? What are my actions saying about this one who is the father's son over all? You see, we must learn as we look at the word and hear these things and read these things to allow the Holy Spirit to bring evaluation to us in relation to the truth about our God. Not for me to look at my wife and say, yeah, but look at her, look at her. Remember that was a garden, everybody pointed, and then came to the snake and he couldn't point to anybody. So what is, what is the, now that we know he's the firstborn, he has first rank in creation. Well, how does that work out? Verse 16, for by him all things were created. Again, making sure we get this. The firstborn should have said that, but Paul is a man who's going to reiterate, and after he reiterates, then he will repeat. Now, some of you may not have gotten that. Christ is the architect and the builder of the creation. The word by him. The word prep, the, you know, remember what prepositions are? Remember in English when you took English and you didn't like all that and you kind of slept through those words, prepositions are some of the most important words in the entire Bible. For what? What, is your, what does it say? By him. Now the word by there in the Greek is the word en. You may write this down if you like. Don't be shy about taking notes. You'll never remember this. The word in has two different uses. It has what we call a locative location use in the location of. And it has the word the instrumental use or by the instrumentality of. So what is he saying? All the creation was created in Christ. In him. In his own mind and heart. In him intrinsically and in him always has been the creation. Do we get that? There has never been a time, and using the word time is not the right word when dealing with the eternality of God, but we have to say it some way. There has never been a time when the entire created order and every aspect about that order has not existed in the heart and mind of our God. So it it originates where? In him. 
And it comes to being through the instrumentality by him. Do we see what Paul is saying here? By using the word E-N, so most Bibles will say by. I would prefer it saying E-N because that comes to the location of the activity. But it's not incorrect to emphasize the activity. So this means that the entire creation began in Christ himself. It wasn't something that God one day thought of. It wasn't something that God one day decided to do. We we get headaches over this. It always has been and forever will be. And in the counsel of God, however this works, the Father gives the Son the permission to put into context, into a time reality, that which has always been in the heart and the purpose of God. And what is the context and what is the purpose of creation? That God in his selflessness will share himself, himself with his creation. And so when we read the most, in my mind, the most magnificent words that I have ever seen printed, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because everything else in the Bible is as the consequence and the development of that verse. And when that verse was put into a time context. Sorry. Before that verse was put into a context. God not only knew the creation in himself. But he knew every aspect of what would happen and be the result of creating. He knew the fall. He knew sin. He knew that death would be coming. He knew Satan would become the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4. 4. He knew that the son who creates would also be the son who would redeem the creation through his death on a cross at the hands of sinful man. He knew the burial of Jesus. He knew the resurrection. He knows eternity from one side to the other. This is what resides in Christ himself. We have too small of an understanding of this magnificent God. That's why I said in the beginning, who are you? What kind of a God are you? Because the more the Holy Spirit shows me that and shows you that and gives us understanding, revelation, and experience of that. The more I am transformed and conformed by the Spirit. And the more I am unwilling to live by the dictates of the flesh and the culture of this world which is antithetical to this God of mine. Verse 16, the second part of it. Remember, for all by him or in him, all things were created. And by the way, it's legal to write in your Bible. 
So what I would do, if you have your Bible open, and hopefully you do, but if you don't, take a pen and where it says by him, put the word in him, you know, in. So you get both words. Why, Jerry? Because it is both. How do I know that? Because I went to our Greek specialist, Evan, affirmed that it was both. I mean, he knows more Greek than I do. Verse 16, the rest of it. So, by all things were created. Where? where what things? What things? Where? Who? What? What? Where? 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 In what? What? You can read it out loud. It's okay. There's a classroom. Say something to the teacher. The teacher asks you, where? Where are these things? In what? In heaven? On earth? Say what? Man, I got so many answers, I forgot. Oh, yeah, visible and invisible. Whether they be what? Thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created. The word is dia, D-I-A, through the agency of. Now, here he's emphasizing the instrumentality. That's why I like that word E-N, to be in him there in the beginning of the verse and through him at the end of the verse. But that's just how my, the Holy Spirit, I suppose, has given me to think. What's included in the universe that he's created? What? Everything. What's excluded? Nothing. All things were made by him. Remember John 1, 3. And without him was not anything made or created that was created. If he is a created being, that verse cannot be said that way. Because then he becomes a part of the creation. And it says all things were created by him and it was not anything created that was created. Now, not only were all things created through him, but all things were created what? For him. You see, there's a thought. And the flesh, sin does this to us. How many of us think that this was all for us? It's for me. You get that, Dane? It's for me, right? It's for me. God has done all this for me. (laughs) Man, am I important. You have foolishness out there in teaching like that. The Bible never says that. The primary beneficiary of the creation is God the Father. By the agency of God the Son. Right? It's all created by him and what? Through him and what? For his benefit. For me. For him, rather. So whatever is going on in my life and in your life. May I repeat that? Whatever is going on in my life and in your life. May I say it one more time lest we didn't hear it clearly. Whatever is going on in my life or your life. If we are in Christ, if we belong to him, if we are his blood-bought, forgiven, adopted children, justified, being sanctified, having the Holy Spirit, born again, saved, (laughs) whatever is going on in my life, is about God.
and is for God. Are you awake? Now think about it. Think about what you're going through right now. Think about it. You may want to even write something on your piece of paper. Whatever. What is this thing that's happening right now in your life? What is that thing? That relationship, that situation, that job, that finance, that whatever. That internal struggle with sin. Whatever it is. Sandy, who is it for? It's for God's benefit. That in this as he works in us, he may receive the glory in this. Why? Because we belong to him. So that hopefully should shut our mouths a little more when we're complaining and asking God, what the hell are you doing around here? Which is the way we're saying it, isn't it? Even though we don't verbalize, oh, I never say that to God. Well, of course you do. I've said it many times, I'm sure. And all things were created for him. Christ is the very goal and reason of the creation. We're not. We are the means through which Christ is manifestedly made glorious. Apart from God's people, Jesus would not have been crucified. Apart from God's people, let me go backward for you, Jesus would not have been born. Apart from God's people, the Old Testament would not exist. Apart from God's people, there would be no creation. But we're not the center of it. We're the means through which God brings about the most marvelous revelation of all. It's all about, it's all for, and it's all from God. As manifested in the supremacy of his son. So that at the last word, God the Father may receive all the glory in the supremacy of his son through the church. Are we important? Yes. But secondarily so. Secondarily so. We need to be very careful how supreme we become. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things, your word may say, consist or hold together. Same thing. Consist or hold together or maintain. Now, the, the word he, the word he is used in the Greek in a way that he himself or he and only he. So let's make sure we don't see this in English because English doesn't have these nuances of, uh, of, uh, of uh, it's not a technical language like the Greek language. He himself, only he, to the exclusion of all others. Oh, there we go. You see, there it is. These Christians think they're so whatever and everything's exclusive. Yes, we didn't say that. God says it. Why everything to the exclusion? Because of who he is and what he does. 
everything else as to its significance and priority and meaning is excluded as to its supremacy. Everything else. He himself is supreme. There is a man in the heavens who sits on the glorious throne with God at the right hand of the Father, who is the supreme majesty of God in and as a man. Amazing. Who would have ever thought of such a theology that we can't even understand what we're teaching? Remember Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Paul gets through all this, and he says, he's scratching his head, he says, Oh, the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, beyond finding out, inscrutable. Who can know the mind of God? I don't get it, he says. I just wrote it. I know it's true, but I don't understand it. And, of course, the reason we don't understand it is because it's about God. If we understood it, it wouldn't be about God. So he himself is before all things. Once again, because Christ is one with the Father, because of his personal, intrinsic divinity as God the Son, because of that, he is the divine creator of all things, and he has the priority over all the creation, over time and eternity. In other words... Before God created, or actually before the Father gave the Son the go-ahead in creation, there was no time and there was no eternity. Now wrap your mind around that. There was, eternity has to do with what? It's a grandfather clock here. It's, it's a grandfather clock. Eternity has to do with what? The ticking off of time. Before the creation, there wasn't even eternity. Everything was, is, I am. And there wasn't anything except, I am. And this is the one who, with a word, and with a word, all time was created and eternity was created. With a word. See, this means that Christ, the divine creator, has no rivals. Before all things, he ain't got no rivals. Where? In heaven and earth. Remember the previous verse? Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Those rulers and authorities also have to do with the demonic realm. There's not a combination of devils and all hell that can any way to any extent have any ability over the son of God do you believe that and that is also the case in our lives except he give them some measure of authority sorry of permission over us So you don't have to be afraid of all that stuff out there. You don't have to be afraid of 
Trump. You don't have to be afraid of Pelosi. Jesus said, I'll tell you the one to fear. Fear this one that after he's killed the body, he can cast the soul into hell. We have one that we fear, reverence, hold and esteem. And that's the son. That's the son. Anyone else we fear, anyone else we give credence to, to too high a place becomes an idolatrous thing. In him, all things hold together. They all consist. Because he himself is before all things and he himself is the divine creator of all things. The entire universe and time itself is held together. You know, one of the programs I enjoy on TV is this, How the Universe Works. You ever see that? These these programs about the universe and the stars and the constellations. You, you, you know what I'm talking about? It's amazing. All that they see and all that is going on, all that has gone on and will ever go on in this created order until the new heaven and new earth, he has it all in the palm of his hand. Can you say amen? Do you believe that? How many of you really believe that? Well, then why are we sweating when something's going on in our life? Do you see the inconsistency? Come on, come on, come on. Stay with me. Do you see the inconsistency? He has the whole world in his hands. Hallelujah. Glory to God. I don't know what's happening in my life. It's coming apart on me. I just don't know. Hallelujah. He's got all things to. Come on, church. Now, let's be real. Haven't any of us at any time ever worried about where was God and what he was doing how many? Anybody ever thought that way? What's the matter with God? I hope he here. And so when we pray, we want to tell him every detail so the old guy can't, won't forget. You think you're talking to Peter Davidson here. Huh? But, uh. Everything. Where? Using the body form what? Everything where? In his hand. He's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole wide world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. You know, some of those old spirituals I like. It's so true. What kind of depth of theology is just in that little tune? Incredible. And if we really believe it, and to the extent we believe it, we begin to see that is what is happening in my life. I am absolutely in the palm of the creator, the eternal God, the Christ himself, who is supreme over all things forever. We're talking about that which motivates and empowers us by the spirit to be manifesting this one in our own lives manifesting in our lives his supremacy for the glory of God the Father. That's what Hebrews 1.3, he holds, Christ holds the universe together by the word of his power. Mm-hmm. What about the supremacy of Christ in relation to the church? Verse 18, 
And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have the preeminence or he might be preeminent. Do you know what preeminence means? It means the first place, right? Does it? Or does it mean the first place in every aspect? You see, because if there's a first place, there might be a what? A what? Fred, what? A second place. See, the danger of having me here is I know some of you and I don't mind calling names out. I was a school teacher, for goodness sakes. I'm used to this. I like calling names. Diane. <laughs> what was I talking about? Oh, preeminence. Can you imagine Jesus? Uh, what's your name again? Let me help you. <laughs> it means, it doesn't mean just first place. It means in every aspect, detail, thought, everything that is, he is preeminent in all of it. It doesn't mean that he is the Lord of my life and now he has given me permission to kind of live according to my own thoughts and my own aspirations and my own wisdom. Fully on that. Even Jesus himself said, I do nothing. I mean, how what? I do what? Nothing. How? how I do nothing of, of my own, but that which I see and hear my father doing, John 5, 19 and 30. Jesus does not make one decision, does not speak one word, does not go one place, etc., apart from the expressed clear direction of the Holy Spirit according to the Father's will. Anything contra- anything not that is sin. Oh my word, how much sin do I have? You see, then it makes sin kind of bigger than just I don't do bad things. So you see, we're not free just to kind of make our own decisions and do what we want to do and use our own intellect. No. We are free from the bondage of sin so that our intellects and minds and desires and everything can be totally captivated and moved by our God for his purpose. Amen? That's what freedom means in Christ. So Paul now comes to God's grand goal in Christ. The manifestation of his own glory in the supremacy of his son in his people, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. The head is a position of authority. Remember in Genesis 3.15? I know all of you know Genesis 3.15. I don't even have to talk about it. Let's go to something else. <gasps> the curse is given because of sin. And God gets to the serpent. Remember that? And he talked about the seed of the woman. Galatians 3.16, the seed which is Christ. Just got to put the word together. So he's talking about Christ. In the Bible, right in the beginning, Christ. And he, the seed of the woman, you shall bruise him as to his heel. You're going to hurt him. Mm. But he will crush you as to your head. 
rule. That's why Colossians 1.13 says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. The supremacy of Christ. He's the head. He's also the firstborn from the dead. Again, he's the first one. Well, the only one to break the power of sin and death and Satan through his death on the cross and in the resurrection, the first one to come forth from the dead, the first of many. Therefore, the Bible calls him the first fruits. He represents the rest of the harvest. He is the down payment, the Arabon. Holy Spirit is called the Arabon in Ephesians 1.4. He's the down payment. God gives us a taste of divinity of his presence in us by the Spirit. It's called the Arabon. It's the down payment, the first fruit. All of it, these are terms synonymous with the tithe. The tithe, 10%. Why does God want a tithe from us? Because it says something about the supremacy of his son. Why do we as elders want you to tithe? Because it says something about the supremacy of God's son. Not to do so is to say something else about the supremacy of God's son. I'm almost finished. Okay. You see, this means that God, Jesus has no rivals in the church. He has a right to rule. He's the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn, the beginning of the new resurrected people, the new creation. Why? So that in everything, he might be preeminent. Here's God's purpose for raising his son from the dead. And giving his son to his people so that he himself may have the preeminence, the first place in our lives. Remember in Philippians chapter 2, Paul was talking about had this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Remember that? Who Although he was in the form of God, he came as God the Son, as a man. He did not grasp equality with God. He did not try to become like God. He humbled himself. By the way, who did try to grasp for equality with God when they heard, you shall be like God? Adam and Eve grasped. He didn't. He undid their grasp. (gasps) He undid their grasp. And in Christ, the grasping that we have always done because of our sin of divinity, he's undone it. Therefore, because he submitted to death, even death on the cross, what? Verse 9, wherefore also God has given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in the heavens, things on the earth, and things, what? Below the earth, and every, What? Knee shall bow. Is that to get it right? Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's all ultimately about the glory of God the Father. So supremacy, the supremacy of the Son is about the glory of the Father. Let me move along.
Who is this supreme heavenly man? Who is he? Who is he? Who is this miracle-working rabbi who walked the dusty roads of Galilee? Who is he? This one who taught as no other man, who controlled the winds and the waves, who healed diseases and forgave sin, who took authority over demons. Who is he? Ask church regularly, who are you? Who confronted the religious leaders with their false teachings? Who was arrested, falsely accused, and sentenced to death under cross and was buried? Who is he? Who is he? In verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, a sovereign over the first creation. In verse 16, he is the creator, the architect, builder, and even the goal of the creation. In verse 17, he is a sustainer of creation through the word of his power. Verse 18, he is a sovereign head of the church. And all of this is proven by one thing. All of it's proven by one thing. What? The resurrection. The resurrection collects it all and proves it all. So this morning, as we're about to sing, in view of the supremacy of Christ, how are we going to live? You see, we must ask the Holy Spirit for daily revelation and understanding. We don't do this enough. We try to think it out on our own and figure it out. And it's good to go to books. I love theology books. I read them all the time. I love them. But I do not depend upon that. I must depend upon the voice and the presence of the Holy Spirit in me regularly. Ask yourself this. What areas of my life or promoting the supremacy of Christ. You may want to write that down and ask. What area or areas of my life is the supremacy of Christ being promoted? And conversely, what area of my life or areas of my life is the supremacy of Christ being denied? All of us have a mixture. We want to, by the Spirit's power, eliminate the denial and increase the promotion, Correct? This morning's purpose is for the purpose of increasing the promotion by the Spirit through the Word. You see, the answers to these questions are going to be revealed on that day. Listen to what Paul says. Very important verse in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due, what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What is good? That which reveals the supremacy of Christ. What is evil? That which denies or demotes, denies or demotes the supremacy of Christ. That's where your definition is. In view of the goodness and mercy of God, let's this morning determine by the Spirit, by the Spirit, that our lives will shout the supremacy of this great God of ours as we stand and sing, How Great Thou Art. Let's stand together and sing.